Good morning, church family. Our scripture this morning comes from Romans 1, 18 through 25. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we need this passage, probably in more ways than we know. We need it to be a lens through which we see our world and our culture. We need this text to be a lens through which we see ourselves. And we also need this text to be a lens through which we see the gospel. So would you help us today to see what is here? And would you help me to make it plain? And then would you, by your Spirit, apply it in ways that would be stunning and miraculous and life-changing? So we anticipate your movement today through this text. And we ask you to come now, Holy Spirit, and speak to us through the very words of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. We're in verses 18 through 25. And as you're turning there, this text is essentially about diagnosis. A surgeon or a mechanic or a quarterback or a teacher or a counselor could be the most educated, most skilled most astute in terms of their abilities, but unless they have one ability, they would fail every single time. And that is unless they have the ability to diagnose a problem correctly. A surgeon needs to know what part of the body needs to be fixed and then how to fix it. A mechanic needs to know what part of your car isn't working. A teacher needs to know what Educational challenges are hindering a student from learning. A a counselor needs to be able to identify what are the root problems that need to be addressed. And a quarterback needs to be able to read the defense. You need to identify what the problem is. A a faulty diagnosis will inevitably lead to failure. No, No matter how good you are, no matter how talented, no matter how smart, no matter how much experience you have, if you don't have the right diagnosis, you not only will not be helpful, you could actually make things worse. So... 
From a spiritual perspective, the same is true. What applies for a surgeon or a counselor or a quarterback or a mechanic applies also in regards to our own souls. If you don't get the diagnosis right in terms of what the problem is with the world, what's the problem with you, then you won't know what the solution is. And that's where Romans chapter 1 is incredibly helpful. Romans chapter 1 is about, first, the good news of the gospel. We covered that last week from verses 16 and 17. Namely, that God demands righteousness. And the hope of the gospel is, is that the same righteousness that he demands is the righteousness that he gives. That over and against works... What we try and do, God gives us righteousness based upon faith, believing in what Jesus has done. That's the good news. But in order to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. You have to know the backdrop against which the gospel is placed. So you're in Romans 1. Hold your finger on verse 18, but then take another finger and take it and put it on chapter 3 and verse 20. So you got one finger on verse 18, got another finger on chapter 3 and verse 20. See how much content there is between 118 and 320? Everything between your fingers is all about the problem. It's all about sin and human degradation. So for the next six weeks, we're going to unpack this section. Every single week is going to be about the depravity of man, the degradation of mankind, and the problem of sin. Aren't you glad you're going to come to church? Before you freak out, check out, or walk out, though, let me tell you that we will always connect this back to the gospel. So the point of Romans chapter 1 is you have to have a good diagnosis or you won't be able to identify not only the problem or the solution. Or to put it in another way of saying it is you have to understand the ugliness of sin in order to marvel at the beauty and the attractiveness of the gospel. So as we go through this text... I hope that you will love the gospel even more. But I also hope that something else will happen. I hope that you'll be able to look at life through a a lens, the lens of Romans chapter 1, that you can see a shooting in the East Coast at a mall again through a lens. So that when people in our world look at events like that or other things in life and they go, what in the world is happening? You know what is happening. You know what the problem is. So let Romans 1 speak to your heart so you can speak into this. As well, this text helps us to understand our culture, our families. It helps us understand suffering. Because what this text is about is about the brokenness of the world that is around us. And that brokenness is at so many levels. And Romans 1 exegetes that problem. It helps us to understand what is really going on in the world. Now, our text today, verses 18 to 25, contrasts what we have just read last week, or studied last week, in verses 16 and 17. And hopefully you remember that those verses were essentially about that righteousness comes to us by faith, that the message of Romans is righteousness, righteousness that comes to us through the gospel, and last week we connected the fact that that righteousness comes to us by faith. So So there is a connection between faith and righteousness. Now, the whole argument that Paul makes here, he flips it. 
In the same way that faith relates to righteousness, so now unbelief relates to unrighteousness. That's why verse 18 begins with the word for. In light of what we've just seen, there's now going to be a contrast. So if faith produces righteousness, then unbelief produces unrighteousness. Now the reason this is important is because this frames the entire understanding of the book of Romans and as well our understanding of the gospel. The main thing we're going to see today is this, that unbelief has consequences. I said last week, ideas have consequences. You may have heard that in your educational journey. And Indeed, ideas do have consequences. Gospel ideas have consequences. Consequences like forgiveness and restoration and righteousness. But here we see the negative side of that, and that is that unbelief, unbelief has consequences. I get this from verse 25. So skip ahead to verse 25. This is, I'm telling you where we're going to end before we even begin. Verse 25 says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's the unbelief. So they, they refused to believe in God, or they believed a lie. So you can think of unbelief in God as the same thing as believing a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You boil all of sin down, at the end of the day, it comes down to worshipping the creature rather than the creator. So, all of that to say that unbelief has consequences. And what I want to show you through the diagnosis of Romans chapter 1 are the consequences of unbelief, hopefully showing you this dark backdrop of the gospel as it relates to this matter of unbelief. So there's five consequences. Here's the first one. The first one is that unbelief necessitates the wrath of God. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now there are some very important words in verse 18. The words, for example, revealed and the word unrighteousness. And hopefully you have heard these words before because they were just in verse 17. In fact, look at verse 17. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we have, again, God is revealing his righteousness that he imputes to us by faith. So God is revealing righteousness in us. So again, he demands righteousness. How does that righteousness come? It comes to us not by our works, but it comes as a gift that God gives by faith in the finished work of Jesus. So that's how the gospel is revealed. And then in verse 18, we see something else that is revealed. So two things are being revealed simultaneously, the gospel and then also judgment, hope and wrath. Verse 18 is a direct contrast to verse 17. And that's why verse 18 starts with the word for. It's connected to the previous two verses. And he says, the wrath of God is revealed. We need to talk about that. Because when you first hear the term wrath of God, you probably immediately think of something that is um, vindictive or angry or inflammatory. If, if, If my wife is gone shopping and she comes home and the kids meet her in the garage and they're like look dad is like full of wrath that that means something not good right so 
You know, dad's got smoke coming out of his ears. There's, you know, something's going on in the home. That, that is not the context. Our understanding of human wrath is not divine wrath. In, instead, you can think of it this way. John Stott says that it is God's pure and perfect antagonism to evil. I like that. That's a helpful definition for me. Or his holy hostility to evil. I tried to think of how I could illustrate this for you. Maybe the best way to think of it would be with the word pain. Is pain good or bad? Yes. Right? Right? Pain is it's both. A bit of a trick question. You put your hand on a hot stove and there's pain and it hurts and you're like, ow! And it, you feel you're, you're upset because it hurts, but you'd be more upset if the pain wasn't there and you're baking your own hand on the, on the oven, you know, on, on the stove, right? That, that pain is a right response to something that is harmful or hurtful. You ever had a sliver in your finger, maybe a metal sliver, you can't see it, but you know it's there, you're looking, looking, something's wrong, I gotta get this thing out. That pain identifies that something's wrong, that shouldn't be there. In the same way, think of God's righteousness as a recoil to that which is evil. So it's a natural, right response, think of his wrath as that, not as some out-of-control anger, but as the recoiling reaction, the right reaction to that which is unholy. You might ask, well, what does the wrath of God look like? Well, look at Romans 2.5. There's two senses in which you need to understand the wrath of God. The first sense, and that we see in Romans 2.5, is in a future judgment sense. So, for those who... Un- refuse to believe who are guilty of unbelief all their life eventually they'll stand before god and experience his wrath and we see that in romans 2 5 where it says but because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when god's righteous judgment will be revealed so god's wrath certainly means a final judgment where people because of their unbelief and their rebellion against god are judged and then cast into hell there's another sense and we get this from romans chapter 8 and verse 20 turn over there so there's an eternal sense and that's probably how most of us think about the wrath of god but there's another sense and it's connected to the fact that it says that the wrath of god is revealed in other words it's not future it's now and the tense in the Greek is present tense. So there's something about the wrath of God that is being revealed, being rolled out, that's being experienced even today. What is that? Well, Romans 8, 18 to 20 helps us. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul is trying to help them understand, how do you deal with sufferings now? And he says, look, you understand sufferings now in light of the glory that's going to be revealed in you. So he's trying to help them understand the sufferings of the world. And then he explains, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then verse 20 is why we are here. For the creation was subjected to, what's the next word? Futility. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Meaning that part of the human condition is the brokenness of the world. That our world is filled with futility. And that that can be anything. Our world doesn't work right. It can be anything as definitive as you go to a funeral and you look at a casket and as much as you're trying to celebrate the person's life, there is something within you that says this isn't right. I shouldn't love people and then have them die like this. There's something just inherently wrong about 
getting a phone call tomorrow and hearing, I'm sorry, but your, your cancer's back. There's something wrong about that. But it means that all throughout our world, there's not just about death and illness, but it means that, that life in general just isn't the way it's supposed to be. There's conflict between human beings. There's misunderstandings. I mean, just communication issues that break down. You ever have that in your relationships with other people? You swear you told them something, but who knows if you told them something or not? Google Calendars doesn't solve that, right? It just, you know, doesn't, doesn't fix all of that. You go out to your car today, and you go to put your key in. Your fob's broken. That's futility. You put the key in, and the key breaks. That's futility, right? Welcome to the wrath of God. That's what it means, right? You get your, your key from your spouse or underneath the... The, the bumper, if you're one of those people, and you take that out and you, you open up the car, you get in, battery's dead. Futility. Welcome, welcome to the fall. Go to McDonald's, you get in line, and the person before you, he's got, you know, a husband and the wife, and there's like 16,000 kids there. And he's like, okay, it's just, this order's going to take forever, right? So you have 25 minutes, you thought it'd take it too. Futility, welcome. We live in a broken, fallen world. From things that are really small and incidental to things that are huge. Go back to Romans chapter 1. The futility shows up in how we even act. If, let's skip ahead. We'll cover this text next week to verse 29. That futility, that brokenness shows up in all manner of unrighteousness, such as evil and covetousness and malice. The brokenness shows up in envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness, in gossip and in slandering and haters of God and insolence and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's what it means. We, we live in a world that is fundamentally flawed and broken, and that is part of the wrath of God, the, the recoiling of God. It means that once you step outside of His boundary... Once you step outside of his defined parameters, that there are divinely designed consequences that go along with those actions that are as much a part of our universe as the sun rising and setting. And what you need to understand is that God speaks through that wrath. Paul says in verses 16 and 17, he's revealing righteousness. Verse 18, he's revealing the wrath of God. So God is always speaking. He's speaking through mercy or he's speaking through severity. He woos us with his mercy. He warns us with his wrath. He causes the sun to, to shine on the just and the unjust. And then he also allows sickness and hardship. Both are meant to communicate the same message. When, when the sun rises on the just and the unjust, it means that, 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 that our lives are dependent on Him and we can't make it without Him. We, we need Him. The sun has to shine. He has to provide all these things to us. And then when the bottom drops out, it's also a reminder that we can't make it on our own. But the problem is many people, they misinterpret the good things in life as though they deserve them and they misinterpret the bad things as though they don't deserve them. You see, this is how Romans helps us. It helps to show us that at the end of the day, the wrath of God is because of unbelief. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie. And the consequences were banishment from the Garden of Eden. They experienced the settled wrath of God. So, unbelief has consequences. First consequence 
is it necessitates God's wrath. Here's the second one. Unbelief leads to the suppression of truth. Verse 18. When he describes ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he then qualifies that by describing who these people are. What do they do? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in our unbelief, what the Bible tells us that we do is we suppress the truth by unrighteous acts. What is the truth? We suppress the truth about who God is. We'll see later on in the text that He's real, that He's the Creator, that you weren't made to run your own life. It's that internal moral compass that you know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. You know somewhere in your heart that God is real. The Bible will explain why we have to know this by virtue of creation and conscience. But what happens is that we suppress that truth about who God is by unrighteousness, by committing acts of unrighteousness. Now, don't miss this. What, it, what takes place and what it looks like is, is not passive disobedience, but active disobedience. That we do things that we know are wrong, but we do them anyways. And then, when nothing immediately negative happens, we think we've gotten away with it, we feel empowered, and what do we do? We do it again. Even though we know that it's wrong, even though that we know that we shouldn't do this, and even though that we know somewhere in the back of my mind, you know, I'm probably not going to get away with this, but I keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And in a strange and sort of sick way, our unrighteous deeds begin to convince us that what we're doing really is not that bad. I mean, look at my life. I've been told all my life, I, I, immorality is the wrong path to go, but look at how much fun I'm having. Look at all the things that I'm doing. And repeat after repeat after repeat action. Someone tells a lie, nothing happens, nothing goes wrong. They tell another lie and another lie and another lie, and they begin to think, you know what? Lying really doesn't have that many negative consequences to it. And what happens is that we suppress the truth that we actually know. We suppress the truth about who God is by our actions of unrighteousness. And at the core of that is a belief system. We refuse to believe what God tells us, and we believe our own lie. What happens is we tamp down the truth that we know and we tamp it down by virtue of our unrighteous acts. Even though we know, look, God is not going to be okay with us. I'm not going to get away with it. We still choose to do it anyway because for a few moments, for a few seconds, or for a couple years, you think you're God. And your sin says, oh, yes, you are. When the reality is, you just took a step towards self-destruction. And although we know it, this is going to ruin my marriage, this is going to cause problems in my relationship, this is not right, this is not right, this is not right, we still go there. Why? Because unrighteousness tamps down the truth that we know. You may, have, you may know somebody, you may be somebody who, that's part of your story. And yeah, that's how I was living. This, 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 thought I was getting away with it. And then suddenly, bang, all the consequences came. And you look at your life and you think, what was I thinking? And what you were thinking is what we all think. And that is, 
I don't have to listen to what God says. And that unbelief has consequences. Third, the text also tells us in verse 19 that it causes an inexcusable denial of God. Verse 19 through 20 gives us two very important concepts, both the knowledge of God and the fact that the evidence for God's existence is plain and we are then accountable. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And what he's referring to here is what theologians call general revelation. It is the self-disclosure of God by virtue of creation, by virtue of conscience, or by virtue of history, all combined, where you could look at life and realize we didn't end up here on our own. You look at creation, that, that the, the, the creativity embedded in the creative order, the connectedness in creation, the beauty of creation, it screams that God exists. You have to work really hard in so-called science, which really has lots of leaps of faith in it, to try and develop a system that says, no, 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 God didn't create this, this just sort of happened. You've got to work really, really hard. I don't know how anybody, at the birth of a baby, when that child comes out and makes its first sound and the cry of a baby that you've seen nearly protrude out of a mommy's belly in in those nine months of gestation suddenly is there and it's alive and crying and beautiful. That, That is made to make your heart go, wow! Not, oh, lucky this happened. Come on! You kidding me? That doesn't mean you gotta work so hard to have an OB ward was meant to be a worship place, not a place that you roll the dice and hope it comes out right. That is not a place. It's not a place that was meant to be unbelief. It's a place that's meant to be full of belief. So creation declares the glory of God. Look, when I moved to Indianapolis. Part of the gig was I was moving south, right? <laughs> Seriously. I, I was like, look, we're moving south. If the elders would give me a contract, I'd written that in. It's going to be warm. you got to make it be warm here. So we're moving south, right? So what? what is going on? The, well, the answer, Romans 1, we live in a broken and fallen world. So I was at uh, some meetings this week and was trying to get to... Um, uh, the conference meeting that I was in, and it had to park way far away in a parking lot. And so it's, the wind is blowing. I don't know, it's like minus 30 below wind chill. And I got a backpack on my, my back. I got my coat around my right arm. I got my suitcase. And, and the reason I tell you all this detail is because I couldn't put any of my hands in my pockets and any gloves on. And I'm walking as fast as I can to, to this uh, the conference room. And as I got into the, the building, I was shivering. My hands could barely open, right, because they're so cold. And I started thinking, I wonder how long I could live if I got stranded, like maybe, what, 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour? But that blast of cold reminds you that without the glow of the sun that is held by the sovereign providence of God, we would freeze and not be able to survive. Our lives, friends, hang in the balance of God's divine care. So even the cold, you walk out today and it's like, (gasps) just be reminded, that stunning blast of cold air is to remind you that it is only by God's kind favor 
that we have warmth in the world. Creation is meant to say something about God. It's meant to declare that He is. Verse 20 reiterates it. Look at it. For His invisible invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There's nobody who's going to ever be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know you were real. Newsflash. You ever heard a baby cry? You ever seen the sun? You ever looked into the depths of the ocean? You ever looked at a starfish? You ever heard the giggle of a three-year-old kid? You ever felt the warmth of tender, compassionate love for another human being? These things declare that God exists. No one will ever be able to say, I didn't know you were real. The Bible says, look around you. Everything declares that God exists. And what we do, human beings, is we find all sorts of creative and scientific and philosophical ways to tamp down the reality. And the fact of the matter is human beings will stand before God without one excuse because creation declares God is real. So unbelief creates an inexcusable denial that God isn't real. Fourth, we're making steps down. The fourth step is this unbelief degrades into self-worship. So it's not just that we failed to believe God, it's that we actually believe something about ourselves. And the picture isn't pretty. Unbelief leads to a perversion of worship. And there are steps. Martin Luther said there were four steps here. The first step towards perverted worship or unbelief, if you will, into self-worship is ingratitude. Verse 21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So the first step in this downward slide is ingratitude. That they make no connection between the gifts and the giver. You know why? Because they think they deserve the gifts or they made the gifts. And they have no idea that they could have the most unbelievable ability to talk. And then God allows one little blood vessel in the brain to go And speech is gone. They have no idea of the talents and abilities that God gave and how much of our lives are dependent on His kind benevolence. And so the beginning is ingratitude. To look at life and go, all these gifts? Yeah, that's about right. That's what I deserve. And the fact of the matter is the Bible says, you you know what you deserve. That's the lens. The lens change that the Bible gives us. Romans 1 gives us. Secondly is vanity. So ingratitude is the first. Vanity is the second. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their thinking becomes worthless and hollow. Without God as the reference point, people lose their bearings and do not even know it. They begin to see life through a lens, and when God isn't the center of the universe, the gravitational pull of their own self-identity and their own self-worth completely makes everything mess up, and it's not too long until everything starts colliding in their life. And the problem is because in their futile thinking, they think, well, this is the way the universe should be. It should all revolve around me. Incidentally, this shows up very early in children, right? 
And then we mask it, we tamp it down with polite statements and educational prowess and the abilities to to navigate our way through life and culture. But the fact of the matter is, if Jesus doesn't alter that self-centered universe, you've just added more planets and more color. But the reality is the orbit is still the same. It's all about you. Vanity. Third, blindness. The text says, their foolish hearts were darkened. This is scary. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. Here is the irony of arrogance. Is they're walking around, talking about how smart they are, and look at what we figured out, and, and we know how to run our own lives. And meanwhile, they are marching their way towards the cliff of moral and spiritual and earthly disaster. They think they're wise, but they're really foolish. And this is a symptom of spiritual blindness that has set in. They have lost the ability to discern what is real, what is true, and where they are going. Think of this like a a moral whiteout. Time for winter analogies today, I guess. So traveling back from um, Kokomo on Friday evening, all that wind was blowing about 11 o'clock at night. Oh, my goodness, coming across these cornfields. And I was like, where am I, Siberia? Because, I mean, the, the wind is swirling up, the snow is everywhere. There wasn't even that much snow on the ground. But the fact of the matter is the swirling reality of all of that snow as I'm trying to pass by a semi being very kind and saying, please let me in, please let me in. As, as, as all this stuff swirling around. The reality is you cannot see Left from right, top for bottom. You're at that point, let's be honest, you're driving by faith, right? I hope this road goes where it's straight. Just keep it straight. And the fact of the matter is when it comes to the blindness of the human condition is we have a moral whiteout. All these things that are swirling around, you lose your ability to know what's left, right, where's the ditch. And if you're not careful, you could drive right off the edge. And the crazy thing is once you hit the ditch, you put it in part go, we made it. <laughs> Made it. We're in a ditch. Yeah. What? It's the moral blindness. Finally, a departure. Or think of this as degradation. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God. Notice that. They exchanged. That's a very important word. And we'll look at this even more next week. They, they traded The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So don't let these words pass you by. They're very significant. He's saying that there was a decision that was made. And they take the value of God's glory versus the value of their own glory. And they weigh them and go, God's glory, my glory. Nah, I think I'll take my glory. They, they trade, the ex- they exchange the beauty of who and what God is for the mere reflection of themselves. They'd rather have themselves than have God. They'd rather do what they want than what God wants. They'd rather worship themselves than worship the immortal creator. And what we do then is we create these little objects of worship. These idols that resemble us. These things that say a lot about us that, that, that we can control. And the fact of the matter is in the midst of this we have made a terrible, terrible choice. And you know what's crazy? Verse 22 says, even though this choice is so self-evidently ridiculous, like trading the sun for a matchstick. And even though it's self-evident that this is a terrible decision, we still delude ourselves into believing that it was a good choice. And the effect is that we worship the creature rather than the creator. Go down to verse 25 again. Again, here's the main thought. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
there's the unbelief. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So here it goes. Unbelief has consequences. And the consequence is, is that it degrades into self-worship. Our lack of gratitude, our self-deception, our blindness, our reckless behavior is rooted in a love for self. So you want to know how somebody makes a mess of their life? You want to know how they tamp down the, tr- the, the, the truth by unrighteousness? Why do people keep doing things and doing them over and over and over? Why does it get riskier and, and more dangerous and more difficult? You know why? Because at the end of the day, everything you're doing is about you. That's why. It is that I am my biggest problem. And it degrades into self-love, into self-worship. That's the Bible's diagnosis. You see... This is why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus one night said to a religious ruler, look, you have to be born again. He's like, born again? And what Jesus means is this, is that if the problem is you, then what you need is not behavior modification. You don't just need a change of relationship. You don't need a change of context. But the real thing that you need is a radical reorientation of the heart. You need a miracle resurrection inside of you. Jesus said it's not what comes out of a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the heart. But the heart is the problem. It's no wonder that Paul talks about the beauty of the gospel when he says that the gospel has power in it. You know what the power of the gospel is? The power of the gospel is to save you from you. That is gloriously good news. Such that Paul would say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has been put away or passed away, and behold, the new has come. So it means that when you're a follower of Jesus, it's not that you deny your past. It's not that you don't know that you're a a sinner who has followed the courses of your own self-destruction at times. But what you know is, even though that is true, Jesus conquered you. That he took the inner workings of your soul and made you different. That the truth, John 8, has set you free. And that when you believe in Jesus, you have life in his name. And not just eternal life, I mean life now. But if you don't believe, then there are consequences. And here's the fifth one. Here's where this goes. And I I want to say this as gently and as lovingly. I'm I'm passionate about this, but I'm I'm not mad. For those of you that are seriously struggling and you're on this path, but here's the deal. Listen to me. You are on a path of self destruction. If you're a young person, your parents may have told you, and you're like, nah, they're old. They're, they're pre-iPod, you know, they're, they're so cassette deck, you know what I mean? So you, you look at them and you got all these reasons why I shouldn't listen to teachers. Ah, they're just educationally minded. You know, all these reasons why. The fact of the matter is, if you're on a path that ignores the counsel of God, you are on a path towards self-destruction and all you need is a little bit of time and age and you can see it play out. Well, Romans 1 tells us, It plays out not by accident. It plays out because it's the divine recoil. It is, in effect, the natural effect of unbelief. Look at verse 24. Notice that the first word in verse 24 is the word therefore. And then notice that the first word in verse 25 is the word because. That's that's important. What Paul is doing is saying, in light of what we just said in verses 18... 
through 23, there is an effect. And when he explains what that effect is, and I'll explain that to you in a moment, he then goes on to further identify the reason for that. So whatever is going on in verse 24 is really important. And what is happening there is this. Therefore, God gave them up. That little phrase either needs to be underlined in your Bible or you need just to get it in your soul or I hope and pray that the Spirit of God today would just press it into you with the trembling that I think Romans 1 intends for that word to create. That word is so important that Paul uses it three times in this short section. He uses it in verse 24. He uses it in verse 26, and he uses it in verse 28. Gave them up, gave them up, gave them up. And the reason is, is this is where the recoiling wrath of God ends up. It ends up in God giving us up. It's directly tied to unbelief. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth for God for a lie, or the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Give them up means that God lets you do what you want. What happens is that God removes any restraint. He allows people to follow the sinful desires of their hearts. You want to lie? Then just go for it. Just lie all the time. Lie, 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 and see what that gives you. You want to be immoral? Go for it. Be immoral. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And see if you find ultimate satisfaction there. You want to be angry? Go ahead. Just have all your anger and see what that does. See how many people that attracts to you. Now, how does this fit with the argument of Romans? What Paul is doing here is he's making the case that our need for the gospel is based upon the fact that we can't do works in and of ourselves to earn God's favor. And he shows us that the ultimate expression of our sinfulness is the way in which we are ultimately pursuing our own self-destruction. So the crazy thing is, is we're working, 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 all the while is on a path towards self-destruction. And God intervenes in the gospel and he says, look, you're the problem. I'm the solution. Your issues are your heart. I can change you through the the wonderful death of my son and righteousness comes to you not by what you do but by faith and in that moment you realize oh my goodness i'm the problem i'm destroying my life sin is the issue and i can't solve it i need jesus and you run to him that's the gospel but you come to it when you understand that at the end of the day i'm the problem this idea of being given up means, listen carefully, that sin becomes easier, it becomes more expansive, you become more creative with it, you get riskier in your pursuits of it, and it becomes more frequent. And when that happens, you are not experiencing more freedom, you are actually experiencing more judgment. You used to feel guilty. It's gone. It's not good. This should be hard. Now it's easy. That is not good. This is the wrath of God. This is the purposeful judgment of God. God in His judgment gives us up to what we say we want in order to convince us that we are making a bad decision. Oh, I hope you see that today. There's some of you that I hope today would be the day that you just go, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm throwing my life away. 
And I've been so blind. And today that you would turn and run to Jesus and say, I'm done. I'm the problem. I need to receive Jesus today. Still not convinced? Not convinced this is true or right? Then just think of what the world would be like if everyone just said what they, whatever they wanted all the time. So Some of you know someone like that. You're like, yeah, they're not fun to invite over for Thanksgiving, right? It's really awkward. They just they say whatever comes to mind. Imagine what would happen if you committed every act that ever came to your mind. Whatever you thought you did. Thought, did, thought, did, thought, did. What sort of chaos would happen in the world? Or just ever any desire that you ever had that you'd go after and pursue it with all abandon, that you'd spend money on everything you'd ever want. Just go home today, sit in front of QVC and think, yeah, it's by that and that and that and that and that and that. You're like, how can we have all these... these roaster grills in our house. We've got 15 of them because I wanted 15 of them, right? You know what's underneath all of this? Underneath all of it is the unbelief in God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and the effect is that everything is ruined. You see, what Paul does here is explain to us how deeply this goes. Now, next week, we're going to unpack uh, verses really 24 through all the way to 32. And I'm going to show you how this goes even to the core of sexuality, specifically even the issue of homosexuality, and help you understand what the Bible says about how deep and how significant this brokenness of the world, even if it goes all the way to the most intimate, personal, and even the sense of our own identity, it's that big of a deal. And yet, in the midst of all of this, what Paul is trying to do is to show us the beauty of the gospel. And so my aim in showing you this text is to help you see yourself, to help you see your heart, so that you could then see the gospel more clearly. And there's, there's got to be a few of you here today that you're walking this path that I'm talking about. Romans 1, you're, you're reading Romans 1, you're like, oh my goodness, this is describing me. And I would just, I would just plead with you, with, with, with all of the compassion that I can possibly muster within my soul, that you would understand and realize that the path that you are on is a path of self-destruction, and the only way for you to get off is not a change of relationship, a change of context. What you need is a change of heart, and the gospel, a relationship with Jesus, brings that. It means that at the end of the day, the gospel changes us so deeply, so fundamentally, so eternally within our core that God gives us new desires new longings he makes in effect a new you what that means is that if you believe the gospel and you're a follower of Jesus you ought to walk out of here on the one hand so grateful for God's grace and so scared of who you could become so thrilled with the beauty of his mercy and yet so humbled that God would love you And you ought to look at the world through this lens of brokenness, realizing that God has brought a solution to the brokenness of the world, and it is the beautiful message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that you are the biggest sinner that you know. I am the biggest sinner that I know. You see, the fact of the matter is, Romans 1 tells us that we need to be saved from 
ourselves. Because unbelief, that's the problem. But the gospel is the solution. And Romans 1 helps us to see it very clearly. Let's pray. Father, we need your mercy to see ourselves in a way that is accurate. And I can't even imagine how many people in this room now and listening online or who will be here in the next service that you would characterize as being blind. And I pray that somehow Romans 1 would be a light that would awaken them to the reality of where or what they are doing and where it is leading. And I pray that today there would be believers who would say, what am I doing? This doesn't fit with the gospel. And they would turn and run back to you. And that for those who've never confessed the name of Christ, who are powerless to deal with their sin, that today would be a day where they say, God, I'm the problem and I need your help. Come, Jesus. Come now. Help me. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you please speak to us today? The road of our self-destruction is way too easy and it's way too familiar. And we need this book and we need you to show us who we are and what to do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. After our service here, we'll have some folks up at the front who would um, love to pray for you. If there's something going on in your life or something you want to talk about from today's service, they're here to help and encourage you, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.